Welcome to the Self Storage Playbook Podcast. In this show, we're going to take you behind the scenes with fellow self storage investors from around the country and look inside their operations to talk about their victories, lessons learned, and the current strategies they're using in today's market to dominate this fast growing field. I'm your host, Terry Royce. Let's go. In this episode, Jason Balin flips the script and takes over the show and interviews me. Terry Royce about my why and what allowed me to walk away from a seven-figure single-family real estate investing business that I built over the last 10 years to go full bore into self-storage. Jason is no stranger to investing. He is a successful real estate entrepreneur based in Ellicott City, Maryland. He concentrates most of his time as partner of Hard Money Bankers, one of the largest privately owned hard money companies in the region. He's also co-authored two books, Property Hackers, Your Guide to Becoming a Successful Real Estate Investor, and The Whiteboard Book, Go From Blank Canvas to Productive, Leveraged, and Highly Profitable Business. Jason is an expert in marketing, sales, and business, and we're excited to have him take over the show today. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Keep in mind, if you have a storage deal that doesn't fit your buy criteria, or you need help with a storage deal that's come across your path, I'm always happy to take a look as we are actively looking to buy more storage properties around the U.S. Shoot me an email at selfstorageplaybook at gmail.com to connect. And don't forget to connect with our Facebook group and help continue the conversation at www.selfstorageplaybook.com. Thanks, guys. I'm excited here today. I have Jason Balin, who I've got to know fairly well over the last couple of years, and he actually reached out to me maybe a week or two ago. And Jason has really been interested in kind of learning more about self-storage. And he's got some business partners and business connections that are in the self-storage business, but he thought it would be fun to kind of take over the show today and flip the script and interview me about my self-storage journey. And um, for those who don't know me personally, in you know the last nine months or so, I had a really successful real estate business in the Baltimore area. And just kind of became interested through some other business connections within self-storage and just decided to, for lack of a better term, go all in. And I think there's not a lot of times in our life we could do that. So Jason is on the show today and he's got a list of questions that I do not know the answers to or what they are. So we're going to... I hope you know the answers to them. You just might not know what the questions are ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might yeah, not know there's two there, but we'll see. Yeah, that, that's fine. No, it's going to be fun. I think this is a good setup. I mean, listen, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about self-storage in general is it's probably the only asset class that we've never been involved in, right? You know, after doing 3,000 loans through hard money bankers, I've never lent on self-storage. I've never owned self-storage. I've never been an investor in self-storage. And I think it's something that's intriguing. And I probably have been involved in almost every other deal, right? Flips, rentals. Commercial properties, office, multifamily, retail, restaurants. I mean, we've we've lent or owned lots of that stuff, but never self storage. And it seems like it's it's hot. Maybe it's always been hot, but that, that kind of leads me into my first question of what originally attracted you to self storage? Since you know it did seem that you had a successful wholesale and flipping and rental company in general. So what what really attracted you so much to self-storage that you were able to just not give it up, but just fully transition into the self-storage world? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I haven't really talked to a lot of people locally that, you know, know my business about it. Just people that know me, hey, reach out and be like, hey, like what's going on? I haven't seen your emails. <laughs> um, so to kind of cap that off, 
I have a, a, a mutual friend who we've had on the show, Mike Wagner, who he's a self-storage coach and he's become a very close friend of mine. And, you know, I went to his one day event a couple of years ago and I, you know, we talked a couple of times a week and I was kind of picking up some nuggets here and then from him and another coach in my business group, Ken Holmes, who we've also had on the show. So there were all these elements of success around me. And in my single family experience, I kind of, I never really had a coach for like the first three quarters of my single family business um, life cycle. And I just kind of bulldogged my way through and figured out. And I just kind of had this epiphany where I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do the same thing here. I'll eventually figure it out. But I have all these elements lined up that are just little dominoes that I can knock over right now and accelerate and go all in. And that was really the real thing with the the, uh, deciding to kind of pivot completely is, you know, I feel like a lot of us, people like you and me that are serial entrepreneurs, we'll try a lot of different things, right? We'll try some different businesses, but we have our main racehorse, so to speak, to lean back on. So if we fail or if it doesn't go as well as we plan. So I kind of, it it took a big leap of faith. I'm I'm not religious, but just like, like, hey, this is, if I go all in and don't have anything to lean back on, my chance of success is going to be significantly higher than if I'm like, hey, I have this really successful business where we're flipping 100 houses a year to kind of fall back on. And, you know, not to say I wouldn't have success eventually, but just to kind of give myself permission to just fully say, hey, let's just go for it. Let's go all in. And if everything doesn't work, we can go right back to what we were doing before. Do you feel like you got burnt out from the old business model just from doing it for a while, which is obviously understandable? Or was it more of you surrounded yourself with... I mean, obviously, there is the shiny object thing. And there's nothing wrong with shiny objects as long as you're not a person, which I know you're not personally, that hops around the shiny object after shiny object. But was it also because you had Mike or whoever else your, your mentors were that they were kind of pulling you over here and said, Hey, listen, like, let us help you. This is a cool business model. And like that support, did that really help take, take that? Um, because you, you know, it's just a little bit, I guess, of different model. Plus you had a support system that was in, engaging. Does that sum that up? Yeah. I mean, there wasn't anybody that was quote unquote pulling me, but I felt like there were these things that were, like actually like overtly pulling me in a sense like, Hey man, you should really get into this. Like you should try self, you know, people are always like, Hey, this is the best thing. But I saw the success other people in my immediate circle were having with it. And to answer the beginning part of your question regarding the burnout, I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, I mean, I've done over 600 wholesale deals and it's, I love wholesaling. There's no, there's all, it's not like, Hey, I'm never going to wholesale again. But for now, I'm not, I've made the decision like, Hey, this is like what I'm going to focus on. And I kind of had this epiphany. I was actually at uh, my, Mike Wagner's house and we were, work- I was helping him fix something on his RV. And again, I'm not like a very religious or spiritual person, but there's that old metaphor where there's like the flood. And I don't know if you've heard it. And the guy gets stuck on his roof and he's like, God, please save me. And he sends the helicopter and the boat and everything. And he dies in the flood. And he's like, why didn't you save me? And he's like, well, I did. I sent, the boat and the helicopter. And I felt like there were all these things kind of starting to circle in my life that said, Hey, everything you need to be successful is really here. All you have to do is lean into a little bit. I don't know if that answers your I think so. I think that's fair. Cool. So let's get into some nitty gritty on self storage because I think that's what this is about and what a lot of people want to hear and learn about is just self storage in general. And a lot of these things are very new to me as well. 
you know, what's your, for you, I'm not saying as an industry, but what's your buying strategy and what kind of to you determines if it's a good deal or not inside self-storage? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of different strategies. I mean, there's guys that build new, there's guys that buy turnkey. What we focused on is buying value-add properties. The property that I own completely myself and as well as the ones that I'm invested in as a just a minority equity participation partner are all value-add properties. So just like regular distressed real estate, you're looking for ones that don't have... You know, all, There's a lot of modernization going on in self-storage, whether it comes to just web presence, automation, just systems, where this is really like an old business model. You know, It's kind of like take, going from the Sears model to the Amazon model to use just kind of a bigger example. But so you're looking for these properties that might not be run. Like people, there's a lot of people that in these markets that their facility is 100% full. And that's great. That's, that's what they want. But at the same time, their, their rates might be 10 or $20 below what the market rate is because they look at, hey, if this thing's full and I don't have to mess with it, that's a win for me. But if you're really looking to come in and opt it, the thing about self-storage is it's, it's a business with a real estate element. And you can optimize that business, you know, putting in the little pieces that really pour jet fuel on it, like tinkering with the rates slowly, really putting pressure on your tenants when they don't pay. Like the facility that I took over in Georgia, there were, we took over the books and they were a disaster. There were people that had huge balances. And we kind of come in and we're, we don't try to be dicks about it, but we're, we try to, hey, these are the rules. And, you know, I heard something really good about it. If you're waiving late fees and not putting pressure on your tenants, it's unfair to your customers that are paying on time all the time to allow that to happen. You know, you're letting these people pay late, giving them discounts. And so coming in and doing little tweaks like that, I've had a customer that was constantly behind, constantly going three months behind. And just by sending her to the brink of auction several times, she's now on auto pay doing things like that. So just to kind of circle back, the facility, when we took it over, it was averaging probably eighteen to $2,200 a month gross and since we've taken it over we haven't had a month below three thousand since we've taken it over and we've had several months that are at four thousand or a little bit above that you know just by tinkering slowly so we've already taken it third higher and have a lot more ways to go and what the previous owner wasn't able to do and owning it for 20 years yeah and i'm guessing that a lot of these are probably mom and pop uh, operations, you know, they're not huge self-storage facilities that most of us might be used to seeing in major cities or, or towns. That's what it seems like. You can correct me if I'm wrong, related to that. And like you said, related to late fees and things like that, it is really a disservice because if you're not able to be profitable, the operator is not able to keep things under wrap or under control, the whole facility goes to shit and falls apart. And then that's not good for every, everybody. You know, how does it like, okay, well, we can talk about how you find some of these properties, but like going back to a good deal in general, like what dictates a good deal? Does that mean that, hey, for every $100,000 that you invest in a deal, you want to you want to get a net return of $1,000 a month or a few hundred dollars a month? I mean, I think most folks relate to cash on cash return or how much they can make on a rental property or how much they can make if they have a private note on a monthly basis, like what to you makes sense financially as, as a good, in, a good investment? I mean, obviously it's a value add, right? So like day one, it might be, it might not be, might be profitable, might not, but as you 
I don't know, I don't know how long it takes a year to transition into, you know, leasing it back up and things like that. Like what, what's the game plan that you, that you go for? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, to be honest, you know, we're still kind of picking up and putting down different deals and playing with them. So just to take for the one in Georgia that we looked at, it was supposedly 30% full when we took it over. And just by taking it over and putting in systems in place, we really realized it was 70% full. What I'm kind of getting at here is when we look at the life cycle of a deal, we're suspected in three to four years to hopefully double the value of the property and basically make close to a 40 or 50% return with between the cash flow and the equity. And I've seen several operators triple the value depending on you know how much value add. And so to take that back, there's there's a deal that I just submitted on in South Carolina that I was really hesitant on, but it's that facility is completely full, but it has no automation and such in it. So when we're looking at that deal without building and without adding to it, we might be able to increase the rents by 20% and really up the revenues, but only in a year and a half. So I'm making kind of less return, like dollar-wise, but the ROI in the year and a half is the same as what this deal might be in three years. So then you wanted to get it up and sell it to a turnkey investor, and you could move on to another property, or you, th- then we have the option to expand it. You know, when we're building a property, you know, building a building for let's say round numbers, just a hundred grand, and you might be able to go and sell, and again, another year and a half that building for. 180,000 or 160,000. So you're getting those same multiples just in different spans of time, you know? So I guess it is similar to maybe a rental property where you can be in a, let's just say a crappy area that has very, very high cash flows, but just a pain in the neck and, and kind of, you know, an area you might not want to be in or maybe an area that doesn't appreciate, but it's got really, really high cash flows. But on the other side, you can get into a better asset class and do a better area and the cash flow is not that great, but it's a good solid asset. That potentially will appreciate over time and be worth worth more. And if you look down the road in ten years, who knows? Like this one's moving a lot quicker because you know higher cash flow. But then this one, you know, leaps and bounds, just jumps by it, I guess, because as as the asset grows, as time goes by. So, so okay, so that so that's interesting. Um, now you kind of answered this question, but are these local assets or these nationwide assets? Can you manage a building? halfway across the country. I mean, I mean, as a real estate investor and a hard money lender, I've never been a fan of investing in out-of-state assets, assets that I can't touch, feel, clean up if I need to. But it seems to me that they can be all over the place. Yeah. I mean, that it's definitely out of my comfort zone by a mile to buy these assets. And, and I'm looking primarily in the Southeast, you know, Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, and the reason being is if it were an hour, maybe even two hours away, I would want to go like, you know, tinker with that thing a lot. Kind of like, you know, you probably being in the hard money business, see a lot of these rehabbers and mom and pop landlords, they go and do things at their property and make sure. But by having it far away, it does, it achieves two things. One, it makes me operate it like a true business from a distance where I have to depend on the systems and so forth. And the second piece is, when I do go there, it falls into part of our lifestyle where we, you know, you know me and our listeners might not know us a lot, but we like to travel. We go to the Carolinas, we go to Florida. So it kind of fulfills a piece of our lifestyle that we want to live where we get to go do business and travel and see cool things. Like you saw in my pictures, we were at the lake this summer and that was part of the trip down there. We went down to do a site visit and do some auctions and so forth. 
But at the same time, we got to do something as a family that we want to do, which was travel and see other places. So that's kind of why, you know, touching on why I'm looking primarily to buy out of state. If there was something nearby, I would definitely jump on it. But my primary area that we're focused on is in the South. I mean, and do you think that it's easier? Do you think that, I, I shouldn't say easier. Do you think that it doesn't matter where it is in the country compared to like when you were wholesaling or buying rentals or stuff like that? I mean, the reason why we only invest locally is because I only invest in areas that I know. Um, and I'm comfortable with. I'm not going to lend on a piece of property in Georgia because I don't know Georgia. I, I don't. I, I don't know anything about it. I don't. I don't know what the value is of the property. The most important part. I don't know what the after repair value is. I don't know what the asset is. Yeah, potentially you can find vendors to help and resources for some of these things. But like, as a real estate investor and someone who buys assets, obviously the most important job is to know what that asset's actually worth. In this case. I'm guessing it's kind of more like a multifamily property or maybe a larger commercial property where it doesn't really matter because you don't have, you know, you don't have to, you, the values are, are dictated a lot more by how many, you know, Oh, I can get a hundred dollars per 10 by 10 unit. That's all I care about. Yeah. Right. So, okay. I, I mean, and that's, and that's interesting. And that seems to be the case because every, not that I know a ton of people that do self storage. I, I don't. And you know, that sphere is growing a little bit, but it seems that every single one of them doesn't have anything locally. And it's probably hard to find stuff locally. I mean, every storage place I typically see around here, maybe I'm wrong, is a brand name, large company that owns them. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you're in a large market outside of D- between DC and Baltimore where you're going to have a lot more REIT style investors. You yeah. know, we're looking in our outlier markets that might be outside of a large city by, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. The area that I'm invested in, I think it's a five mile radius. There's only like 4,500 people. You know, if you looked in your five mile radius, there's probably... I mean, do you analyze that data of saying, okay, well, you know, I know 1% of 4,500 people will rent or sure. is that as do you? And we're and like, okay. So I, yeah, again, and we can talk about due diligence that actually... Should have been a question that I, that I have, but we'll maybe we'll talk about due diligence in a second, like like a checklist or something. I think that would be I think that'd be helpful. Tell us a little bit about how kind of management works. Do you have full time vendors? Do you have part time vendors who take service calls? How do rents come in? Who pays rent? Who handles defaults? Like, are you handling all this stuff, or do you have a staff? And actually, first, what how many units is that one property you're talking about? Because that could be a good frame reference to people as we go through this. Yeah, so that property is three buildings. It's 104 units, which covers 13,500 square feet. Okay. So four, three buildings, 4,500 square feet each. We're going to, looking at chopping some of the bigger units down. So hopefully we'll have like 108 units here shortly. But that property sits on five acres. So where we've been able to go, we thought we were at 30%. We were really at 65 or 70% and are now close to 90% full. You know, we're tinkering with the rates a little bit, like creeping them up. What we're hoping we can do is add one, two, maybe even three buildings over the course of the next couple of years. And so that's kind of what we look for too, is a property with a little bit of land that we can add buildings and kind of force the value there. That makes sense. So by having all that land, if we don't do anything with it, well, that's fine. But if we want to add parking, if we want to add buildings, you know, we have that option to kind of force that value there, which that's one of the cool things about the business is like, you know, when you go and buy a single family property, there's usually not a lot of forced value add you can do. You know, maybe you have a walkout basement and you can put a fourth bedroom or third bedroom down there, or maybe add a master bath to, you know, do things like that. But these, you, it, when you have the right 
property, you can really just kind of grow. You can double the, the size of your facility, triple the size of your facility. Sure. You need things like that to kind of make it more, you know, kind of have multiple options. Or, I could, you know, you can sell it and kind of leave that on the table for the next buyer. Got uh, it. That exam, I know you were kind of asking about the Georgia property. I don't know if that 100% answer your question, but. Yeah. Well, what you talk about how the management works. Do you have full-time vendor? Do you have a full-time employee down there that's on-site? Do you use part-time vendors? Do you do serve? How do, how do service calls? You know, let's say somebody gets locked out of their thing. You know, who comes and breaks the lock in order to get them their padlock? How do they get back in? Let's say a garage breaks. I mean, how do rent payments come in? Like, if you're not there on-site and you're not local, who's doing all this? Yeah, no, that's a great. Sorry, I missed. I, I got uh, ahead of myself. I missed that part of your question. So. There's probably half a dozen different um, software providers that do things like, you know, as far as your rent, the unit rentals, payments, and all that. Uh, we use one where when we first took over the facility, we kind of banged the phones. Like we had that rent roll and it was kind of not accurate. But anybody who had balances, we would try to do workouts with them in exchange for getting them set up on auto payments. So I think now we're up to 70% of our current renters have like at the first of the month, it bills right away. And now are you doing this or is other people doing that? That's all set up through software. So like for those 70%, like it's all set up. Like when I first took over the facility, I kind of got on the phone and did it because having somebody else do it, I knew it was just going to come back to a lot of questions. And it really only took a couple hours. And obviously on the road, that'd be great to outsource and train somebody, but kind of gave me a feel for what goes in, what I'm dealing with the customer. I had a good profile on all my customers right off the bat. Um, and as far as, so then we've got, yeah, let's just say a little over two thirds of our customers paying through online. So we didn't have to think about it. Right. And then when they want to rent the, the company we use, they call in and we'll rent online through the company. So I don't have to deal with any of it. I just get an email notification. Hey, this customer is moving into unit 300 and they're paid up. So that all gets set up without me having to touch it. So you pay for a service like a, like, is that monthly, annualized, one-time fee? How does that work? Do they get a cut of everything? Yeah, I think. That, well, they take no. They don't. They take like a small amount. Like a, they charge by unit. So we pay. I think for our facility, I think we pay around two sixty for the phone service a month, which isn't isn't a bad price. That, you know, and there's some things that are lacking, but for me not to have to do it, it's well worth it. Yeah. And then we pay. I think maybe eighty bucks, seventy bucks a month for. A software that does all the auto pays, does the website and all that stuff. So that's all kind of integrated together. And then to kind of answer the second part of your question with vendors and management, we hired somebody local. We ended up hiring our grass guy to kind of help out. He stops by, you know, once a week, every other week, whenever, depending on how, what we have going on and checks, you know, that the lock, if there's issues with locks, so forth like that. One of the things that drew me to it, you were saying like, Hey, if somebody gets locked out, is that it's a very non-urgent business. You know, if you get a call as a single family landlord and you've got an issue with plumbing, electric, heating, like that's an issue and people are going to want it fixed. With the, the self-storage business, it's it's a lot less urgent. So the issues we have had, if they get fixed in a couple of days, it's usually not a big deal. So we hired that guy locally and that's been working out and we've been kind of working through some tweaks with him as far as you know, procedures and how often things need done. And then we've been checking in with local vendors. And um, as far as we're, we're putting a gate or, or an offense around the whole property is what we're working on now. So managing all that from 
you know, 500 miles away has had its challenges, but you know, you've kind of set the bar like, Hey, I'm here. This is in with email and FaceTime and everything. Now it's really not as hard as it would have been even two or three years ago. Yeah. And I guess there, there is a lot less moving pieces than a regular, you know, regular house in general. Like when you get, I guess, well, let me ask you a question while while we're talking about this fence thing. So like, you're going to put a fence up, right? And, and I know you're doing, you FaceTime the guy be like, yeah, this fence looks good. I'll take this six foot black fence, whatever it is. (laughs) Is your maintenance guy that did lawnmow and is he coming out to meet him there? Like, I'm just curious. Is he meeting him there? Like, do you have to get a permit? Uh, who files for the permit? I'm, I, I'm just, I'm trying to play like on one side, you have a really labor intensive business. And on the other side, it's like set it and forget it. And I know it's not set and forget it, although it does seem to be a lot easier potentially than what you're used to, you know, with so many moving pieces, what we're, most of us are used to is so many moving pieces. Do you think, you know, as you grow and buy more facilities and things like that, that the setup is, you know, it's pretty standard. Like you don't need somebody to be on site. Like you, they can just call, they can call in the, the service and they say, Oh, your unit 104. Here's the code for the front door. You know, your grass guy, I'm guessing your grass guy probably is the one who's cutting off the old locks and adding a new lock. Right. Yep. So he's like your property manager, AKA or whatever, your self storage manager, whatever you call him. It sounds like daunting to manage, like you were saying, for managing that from far away, but it's really not. And it's about just, you know, if we, hey, if we have to go down here for a week and bundle everything together with some site visits, that again is part of why we want to buy in certain areas so that we can go visit our family that lives in those areas. So we can, you know, do, do trips. Like when I own properties in Baltimore, like I wasn't usually excited to go do a site visit at those properties. There was no like part of me that was like excited that maybe stopping at the Chipotle along the way. Like, but this is like a, a different. So, and again, in the nine months we've had it, it's just really setting the expectations with your vendors is like, hey, this is what we need. This is what we do and how we need it done. Can you do that? And I know like with contractors, it's like, that's a, that's, sometimes that's a big ask, right? Like, <laughs> do it like this. And, you know, it comes out completely. Yeah. But, you know, you're dealing with fences, you're dealing with gravel, you're dealing with metal buildings. So all in all, it's not that hard. And I think letting go of some of that has been, that's kind of why I wanted to get into the business. Like, you know, you know me a little bit better than our listeners may, but like, I want to go and touch things and be involved and make sure everything's running right. So having to give up some of that control and that oversight has been pretty awesome. And I think it's something that a lot of investors in our space struggle with doing. So it's kind of forced that hand for me. That makes sense. Do you think you could do a deal by itself without ever going to the property once? Today, no, but I think eventually, yes. And okay. I actually kind of take that back a little bit. Like, if you had the right person, like I've looked at several properties remotely and had just gone online and gotten people to take pictures, be like, hey, can you do a drive by and look at these things? Here's a checklist. I think you could, and you know, it's a lot of it is going to be the jurisdiction. I think having living and working in Baltimore, we deal with a lot of bureaucratic red tape where it's hard to get people on the phone, hard to get answers. I send the, the guy in these, a lot of these small towns we're looking at an email and he calls me the next day. He's like, Hey, here's my cell phone. Call me if you have any questions. So it's easy to kind of get the answers you need to from like a zoning perspective, development usage. What am I allowed to do here in the future? which are really like the key things that you're looking at. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I'm just, again, I'm trying to figure out how hands-off it could be. But you're right. I mean, it's a concrete 100-square-foot unit with a garage door and a, and a lockbox. Or, a, you know, a padlock. So there's a lot less moving pieces in it. I've had storage facilities before. We have one right now with our office. So, like, I, I don't have a ton of experience with, you know, being a customer of one. But a lot of my stuff relates to the ones we have. And, I mean, they're around here, right? So, they're, you know, there's typically people on site as well. But again, I guess at the right numbers, it does make sense, right? To have somebody on site. You're paying 260 a month plus 70 bucks for this, plus the guy cutting the grass. So whatever. I'm not saying you're paying five, whatever, five, six hundred bucks a month, like six grand a year. That's not a ton of money. But like I guess with scale, there could make could be a time that it makes sense to, you know, have an employee. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on knowing your market. Like if you're in a market like in, you know, you're a little bit outside DC. If you're dealing with like a class A facility with the right type of customer, they want to be handled a little bit. But in these outlier markets, like there's no, you know, there's, I think within 10 miles of us, there's eight facilities and one has a full time manager. And it's like an 80,000 square foot facility. Most people, I guess, are tr- you're trying to do automatic payments for people. Do people write checks and where do they mail them? They mail them to your house or do, you have, or do they mail somewhere else? Yeah, we still have a handful of people that mail checks that are like leftover customers. Um, and with all the new people, and I'm kind of going back and forth on this, we make them set up on auto pay. And in the market we're in, it's it's a small market, right? So there's a lot of people that don't even have like credit cards and debit cards, which may sound like outlandish, but that's just the type of market it's in. Yep. So I've been going back and forth with waiving that. Because we still have some old customers that refused auto pay, but they'll go in every month and pay online. But then we have some that are like, hey, I don't have debit or credit. But at the same time, having these facilities has shown me is that if those customers get like a couple payments behind, the likelihood of them getting caught up is low. So yeah. it's like, I'm torn because doing a, I might be doing a disservice to them by having to like, hey, get in this unit, you know, their lack of organization now, now that instead of owing hundred dollars for that ten by ten. Now they're they have three or four hundred dollars, and they're just like screw it. So they're kind of it kind of puts them in a bad spot. So we have they are mailing them to our PO box, but we're trying to phase those people out because those people I found that as soon as they get behind, it's like an uphill battle for them. Hey, listeners! Whether you're looking to get on the fast track to buying your first self storage facility expanding your storage empire, or connecting with top-level storage investors and operators, then join me and loads of other self-storage investors on a monthly interactive training by visiting www.storagerebeltrial.com. Here, you'll find an interactive group that hosts live monthly trainings in addition to an active daily forum that connects storage investors from around the globe and is hosted by our good friends of the Storage Rebellion. Mike Wagner and his team have generously offered our listeners a risk-free one-month trial, and you can check it out by visiting storagerebeltrial.com. Here, you'll have access to all the previous recordings and forums to check out all the solid content that has already been discussed, as well as the new content coming up. I'm on these calls every month, and there are lots of other new and experienced storage investors as well. So come join us risk-free at storagerebeltrial.com. See you there. 
And do most people, they do books in-house that like you do your books or like do PD of services for that? Like, like it seems like there's a lot of automation already in place, right? Like it seems like there's third-party vendors and companies that are already doing this. So a lot of the management on this, did they do the books for you as well? Or you guys just handle that because it's not all that labor intensive? The service we use, they do have a bookkeeping service, but we are putting that in with you know our normal bookkeeper so that everything at the end of the year, all of our tax prep and planning is... It's really easy to, for them to just say, "Hey, this is here." These things, rather than having more vendors, we needed we need to deal with just consolidate it because really, it's just like all of the other businesses that we've done with real estate. It's you know, rent in and construction expense, either capital improvements or repair improvements. You know, it's really simple overall, other than having a lot of rent transactions because you have a hundred customers. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've heard that. You know, a default happens quickly, right? It's not like you're kicking a, a tenant or an owner foreclosing or evicting on a home on an owner. It's very, very different than these. What is it like 30 days and they're out type of thing? And you can just change the locks. I'm guessing I was gonna ask the question related to you to put judgment for past bread, but I guess it's not worth they owe you a hundred bucks. It's not worth a filing charge more than that. So I guess you don't really go to collect them. Maybe you do. Do you like you try to collect them? We haven't. I'm sure some bigger, you know, bigger reach style companies may push a little bit, depending. Like you technically, their stuff belongs to you though, right? Like how does that work? We just had an auction in today. And again, we we when we were down there in August, that was we went down to kind of we were going to Florida already, but we ran the auction while we were there. And the units, like they're not getting a lot of money. So we've turned that into more of an automated process too. We we do all that online. There's like three or four different auction website companies. So we run all that remotely now too, which then again, further automates that process. We just had an auction today that ended for a customer that, again, they weren't on auto pay. They got behind. It was catching them up. So it's like weeding those people out so that then we can have the customers and show them, hey, this is how it's run. This is the process. And it's, it's just better for everyone. And, that, and those auctions can happen. For, I mean, is it like Storage Wars? You ever see the show Storage Wars? <laughs> I, I haven't found any seen anything good. I like that's it's all like you know, sometimes there's old baseball cards or there's memorabilia's or or vintage watches or no. you haven't found anything cool like it's it's all peed on mattresses and and, yeah. and nasty stuff because a lot of those storage wars you know they bid up for you know a few hundred bucks to a few thousands and I know it's TV but again this is why we're having this podcast because I don't know much about storage. The unit we had today sold for it was one bid and sold for ten bucks so. <laughs> Is that the starting bid? Yes, that was the starting bid. And when and then, we went down there, wait, 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 what does the auction company take from that? Ten percent. <laughs> so they got one dollar to come out there. They no, 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 it was all online. Oh, it was all wait, wait, wait. It's like Hubzoo. But how's that set up? Can't they go look to see what's in there, or is it just blind? no? We just put pictures. So okay, so the way that it it, it happens in Storage Wars, and I haven't seen yeah, that they do it all in person. Yeah, they all had it all, and they're full time guys that are buying stuff at auctions, and they go around and and they open up the garage, they put a piece of tape or chalk so you can't walk into a certain, you can't go in there, touch and feel anything, and they have a few minutes, and then they're like, "Cool, let's start the bidding." So it's yeah. not like that. I mean, I've watched that show and, and <laughs> on live on a live show, but so if you, I watched that show, let's just say a dozen times back years years ago. And when in the show, they were talking about like, oh, I'm going to go to this one because that's in a, a high dollar area. That's, that's right. So the area we're dealing in, it's not like a lot of 
let's just say high dollar stuff, at least in the units that we've auctioned. So by going through that first auction on site, we we had two people come out to the auction for them. We were like, all right, this is a lot of effort. And the same thing happened. We had eight units, four of them sold for $10, all the same guy, and the other ones didn't. And we ended up having to clean them out. So by moving it to the online process, you know, we've now, maybe we get a little bit more money, but it takes less manpower to do the auction. And it automates it more. We don't have to collect money. We don't have to mail checks. Yeah. You're only a few hundred bucks, worst case scenario, past due anyway. So it's like, whatever, let's just get this thing operating again. Let's talk a little bit about financing. You know, do people buy these things in cash? Do they get uh, bank loans? Do they get private loans? How, how are some of these things in your opinion, in your experience financed? Yeah, I've seen a lot of different a lot of different structures. And in this business, since you're kind of dealing with more business owners, I've seen a lot more owner finance deals or partial owner finance deals. And I, I'd say that's a good chunk of the properties, not the majority. And then there's also a lot of bank financing, and there's been more more operators that have come in that are willing to lend on this. Live Oak is one of the big ones, definitely probably the biggest by far, at least that I know of, that they kind of specialize in this space. I've known some other operators that have been dealing with local banks that just kind of know the market and they're like, hey, you're getting this. This is the NOI. Like, this is a great deal. Like, we'll, we'll lend on it. So, and then there's a lot of people that are doing cash just, you know, on deals. And with the deal we just offered on in the Carolinas, so we kind of offered at first, we, I just threw out like half a million and, the guy was like, no. So we went back to him and then structured three different deals. We're like, well, the half million was the cash offer. We can come up to, you know, let's just say 580 on that. And then if we're going to do bank financing, we can come up to like, I think it was like 625. We can do owner financing, we'll do 700. That seems like a big spread, which it is. But we were factoring in, you know, all the costs with the bank financing, like the appraisals, the environmentals, all that stuff. If we can eliminate those and do the owner financing, then we can build out another building or two and refi and pull that money back out versus having to go through two bank loans down the road if we get that property potentially. So there's a lot of different options in the space. And I've also seen a lot of investors pool money. That's the other two properties that we're invested on. We are we have equity and cash flow participation. We're just a partial investor on that deal. So they they raise the money and we put the money in and then we get a piece of that money. And then usually they're coming in with none of their own money. So they don't have debt. So they're giving up equity, but they don't have debt or payments. So in a value add facility that could be negative cash flow for one or two years, that's actually, you know, could work out favorably for them if they don't want to keep on the funds to pay that. Yeah, I was gonna ask about these these deals and partnerships and creative structures. I know some business models in general work great if you're the owner operator, but as soon as you remove yourself and take on partners, it doesn't work as well. I'm guessing there's probably enough room in these deals that you could be the operator or the whatever the sponsor who puts the deal together and you can raise capital and maybe even hire somebody hands on that's going to run it it seems like there's probably enough room in these deals you know obviously if you buy them at the right numbers to be able to accomplish that yeah i mean it just depends on what you're really you know it's just like any other facet of real estate you make all your money when you buy it and then there might be some icing on the cake at the end with whether you know in single family it's going to be appreciation or so forth but here it's like, hey, can I get can I get the rents up higher than maybe I thought I could? Can I get the occupancy up a little higher and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of room in the deals, especially the larger ones. You know, once you start getting into the 20, 30,000 square feet, which in the real reality of things aren't even that large. Those are really the more medium-sized properties. You know, so where, where do you find like where do you find these things typically? I mean, are they, you know, are, are these are they bidding? It doesn't seem like there's bidding wars for these things. 
maybe they are, but like, how do you find a self-storage place in Georgia when you live in Maryland? So the one I bought, I, I found through a wholesaler that had it. I just happened to be the right place, right time and found it and was kind of interested in that market. Being able to analyze and kind of have a little bit of that gut feeling of, hey, this is a good deal. There's a lot of commercial real estate sites with cheese get listed on. You know, we're looking to farm our own deals too, just like we did with single family. So we're looking at direct mail, cold calling, reaching out and networking with brokers and just kind of, you know, sowing the ground a little bit to to see what sprouts out of it. You know, a lot of people get discouraged. Like I made all these calls and did all this, but this is a much slower business than other facets of real estate. So just creating those relationships to have the opportunities come your way, I think is important. I mean, it's, whether you're in other areas of commercial or single family, it's the same thing. But with this being a little slower, I think it's easy to be like, man, this, this isn't working out. But it's really just creating all those relationships, contacts, building that rapport. You know, Whether it be with the brokers, whether it be with the wholesalers, whether it be with the owners that you reach out directly, that aren't ready to sell. Like I have three owners that I know of that they're not ready to sell today, but I, I would bet money that in the next within the next five years, they're going to sell that property just because of their age or other situations that we may have discussed. Is there any ways to kind of scrape data to see how long someone's owned it for? I mean, I guess it's not public information of how it's, how many units are running because I was thinking about it. Like, let's say you have a big facility and it's completely abandoned or like only a few units, you you know, a building like that just warehouse um, it, it's worth nothing for the most part. I mean, depending on where it is, if it's good land in a good part of the country, it is. But in some of these areas that you're talking about, it's probably worth nothing or it could be worth $500,000 overnight if it was fully rented. You know, and that's not, yeah. So, I mean, that's not the case everywhere. So another one I was just thinking about was like an easy storage, which obviously is a name brand. And I remember there was one across from us when we had an office in uh, one of our other offices in Columbia on Red Branch. And I remember they used to have a standard one unit or one floor brick building, right? And they, I don't know if they had to get approval to do this, but I think that thing went up like four or five stories high because they knew there was demand. They probably already had a clientele. They're all climate controlled. And I'm guessing they're probably making a fortune on it, right? It was all, you know, they're, they already own the land. They already own the building and they just kept going higher and higher and higher. Like, have you noticed if there's as many restrictions in this business compared to, you know, I mean, you know what it, what it takes if you own a single family house and you want to turn it into a four unit building or a four unit apartment, like that typically can't happen. I mean, in some areas it can depend on how it's zoned, but like that's a harder process in general. In this, is it easier to do stuff like that? Like, like if, if like on your place, let's say you wanted to build, you had enough demand that you could go 10 stories up. Like, could, could you do that? <laughs> Well, that's the thing about in the smaller markets, it's a lot looser for what you need. Like we don't need a permit for our fence. We don't need permits for a lot of the stuff we're doing. But in these more denser markets, like what that you're talking about outside of DC, there's a lot of municipalities that are cracking down because self-storage is kind of like this in-between business. Is it like commercial or is it industrial? I can't name the market specifically, but I've read and heard things about municipalities changing the zone like okay we're going to move this from business zoning to industrial zoning so the issue with that is when you're self-storage what it's a convenience business right you've got stuff you want to get it out you're probably not driving by three or four to get to the fifth one so you want to be near population centers so when you see these ones that are popping up four stories you know they're put the thing they're doing that probably get around some of that is the outside of that building looks more like an office building than a warehouse or 
in these markets. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's a lot more regulations coming down on denser markets to sure. because they don't want to look at what's essentially a warehouse building next to single family townhomes. How do you do the research to know, like, hey, is there room for one right here? Or like, should I expand? Oh, I know there's one a few blocks away, but should I build one right here? How do you do, like, is that something that you're just learning? Because you're new at it, right? So you don't obviously know the, the full answers to that. But like, you know, for instance, if you buy a rental property, if you buy a regular piece of real estate in a subdivision, you know that depending on your improvements and other things, approximately what it's going to be worth. Like, how do you even know? It, it's not necessarily like, oh, if, if I build it, they will come <laughs> type of situation. Maybe it is. But how do you know that, especially in some of these rural areas, like, and, and I remember when we were driving to Florida over the summer, I remember I passed a self-storage facility and it was completely just sitting there vacant. And I was like, yeah, this, you know, seems like it's a decent area. Like, if you just build one, will people come and rent? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So when we're doing our, I mean, basically what you're getting into is due diligence and analysis. We are going in and pulling the population data by concentric circles and what, how many people live in this radius, how many people live in this radius. So. In the storage business, usually your core is your three-mile radius because that's like your... De- Again, I'm kind of getting into... What you're doing is you're looking at the density. And st- strategically in storage, you can support seven to eight people per square mile. But in some of these markets in the South, you can maybe support 9, 10, 11, 12. I know some people that have purchased stuff in the fifth, you know, 15, 16 square feet per person. So I'm looking at this market and I'm saying, okay... There's me and there's one other guy. What's the total existing square footage and how many people are there? What can that support? And when you look at it, you also have to look at the type of inventory that's there. So I'm looking at these competitors. I'm like, they don't have any web presence or maybe a poor web presence. Maybe their rates are low. Maybe the facility just looks terrible. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to go there because you're like, well, this place looks like somewhere I'm going to get robbed. Um, You're kind of looking at that and, and looking at what it can support. Yeah, so tell me that part again about, let's say, 10 people per square mile. Is that what you said? Yeah, the national average is between seven and eight. So in the South, yeah, seven. So, okay, so I'm sorry. So for every person, you should have about seven to eight square feet per person. That's the national average. But in the South, you have some different demographics because. Yeah, so if you've got 10,000 people, you should be able to have 70 to 80,000 square feet. Square feet. And what does square feet dictate to related to units? Because the I'm looking at the demand, right? So the units are you're gonna have a mix. Like if you might be in a lower income area, people might trend smaller units. If you're okay. in a lower income area, people have bigger three and four bedroom houses, you're gonna probably get bigger units. So your unit mix is gonna depend on the demographics of your market. Got so it. In earlier, we're looking at taking some of our bigger units and breaking those down, our 10 by 30s and breaking them into you know, two 15s or 20 and a 10. Yeah. If you've got 10,000 people in a three to five mile range, you're, you're probably going to have demand for 70 to 80,000 square feet in the South. You've got different demographics because houses down there don't have basements. You've got a lot of mobile homes. You've got some different demographics that tend to push the demand higher. So when I went to look at mine in Georgia, I was like, all right, there's this one over here. That's 10,000. I'm 13,500. So you've got about, let's just call it 24,000. And then the demand shows that I should have 32, there should be demand for 32,000 square feet. 
but why is this underserved? Is it poorly run? Is the management bad? So I went and looked at that and I was like, all right, that has to be why this is run poorly. So therefore I can come in and put the right management in place. I can get it up. And to, to that point, I've, I have some tables and stuff that I've been looking at in the last nine or eight months, however many months it's been, we've been able to increase occupancy by over 3000 square feet just by doing some simple things like to, this will make you laugh, but I haven't changed the signage out front. It still has the old name with the old sign out front. I haven't done anything cosmetically to the property because we're kind of getting ready to do a big overhaul. So nothing has changed about the property other than we've come in and put the right management and systems in place. We've actually raised the rents as well, which might seem counterintuitive because you're like, well, if you didn't do anything to the property, what's going to make you raise rent? But it's just answering the phone, having the ability for people to rent online, things like that. No, that makes that makes sense. But it, and let me ask you this: so, like this guy that you want to buy this property from for five hundred thousand dollars cash, right? So my guess is it's probably underperforming. You think you could probably make it better in general? As a business model, does it make sense to just buy land, do a new construction facility nearby, knowing that after it's up and running, you have a brand new facility, and chances are he's there's a lot more demand, anyways, there, and you could potentially take his. You know, tenants from him in the in the near future. Like, have, do people do that instead of buying existing building? Yeah, I mean, so the one that I'm looking at, so that could be a play, but you're basically starting out at zero, and then you're in like a Walmart style price war, right? Where it's kind of like a little bit of a race to the bottom. You're probably dropping your prices, so you're the cheapest guy in town, and you have the nicest facility. So yeah, you're going to fill up, but there's this ramp up period where you've got a, a bigger capital expenditure. It's going to be harder to get that. You know, with the owner existing facility, I can come in and potentially get that owner financed. I've already got cash flow stream in place to support it, the debt, you know, whether that be owner financed or whatever. And I, I now, with the existing cash flow, I can tinker and pull yeah. the rates. Like it's, it, that's the great thing about it. It's a business. I'm like, okay, well, you're undercharging by 40. These rates should be 55 or higher. I can go in and immediately raise rates on all the units by, you know, you don't want to usually jump them up 100%. But raise them by five percent, by ten percent, by twenty percent. I get it. No, that makes sense. Oh, I got two more questions for you. And then, then we can go and finish finish your show that I hijacked today. Well, what's been the toughest part for you so far of owning storage? Of owning it? Yeah, we're the uh, business of self storage. I don't know about actual tough part, but I would say kind of circling back about the remote management, just letting go of that that piece and just kind of trusting the process whether it be the vendors or the boots on the ground or whatever maybe just being at a distance from being able to go out if i if something needs fix you know like not fix like necessarily a, a door's broken but it's like there's an issue you know if there's trash like i don't know what's going on down there i just have to trust the process so that's been tough from more of like a, a mindset standpoint to kind of lean into that. But that's also one of the big reasons that I alluded to in the beginning of why I wanted to get into this business is to kind of pull me out of some of the day-to-day operations that I was in with my other businesses. Gotcha. And, w- and what do you think Terry Royce's end goal is with all of this? Like what's your end goal with just storage? Not, not everything, just self-storage. Yeah. I mean, storage to me is just like a more fun it's a more fun rental business. You know, you get a single family rental and you throw a tenant in there and you know, you're kind of set for the next year, two years, whatever your lease is. There's not a lot you can do there. Right. 
It's not to me like that's people like us. We like the elements of business, the funnel stuff you guys create. That's fun to tinker with that stuff and figure out what's worth, what works. The storage business to me is the same thing. Like, okay, well, if we raise rates a little bit, can we do this? If we break these units down and rearrange them, can we do X? Like, okay, we can build on our property and not be limited just by what we've already bought, but now we can expand and accelerate the appreciation. So you can play with the business a lot more from just like an operation standpoint, you know, and that to me is fun, like going in and, and tinkering with the business. Yeah, but that's fun on a small scale until you have to do that. And, and I guess that's kind of where I'm getting at. I mean, I believe that one of your reasons for, for pivoting is because you you went from, hey, I'm having a lot of fun in wholesaling or flipping or whatever. And now I got myself stuck in a position where like, I'm not having fun anymore. Right. Because it's, I got a lot of stuff. I mean, listen, anyone can go buy a few properties and do it, but we all know that as you grow, you know, your main day-to-day operation isn't like going to find and flip a a house and, and putting all the finishing touches on it. Like you don't even know what houses you own anymore. You don't even know what properties you have anymore. You don't even know who your buyers or your sellers are anymore. You know, you're dealing with management and, like C-level position stuff. And it's very, very different. And I believe that most people got into investing, not necessarily for that. And again, I'm not stating that it's a bad thing, but like, you know, if if you get stuck in the transactional stuff every day, you know, you you potentially put yourself in a bad position and that could happen with self-storage, right? Like I understand you're tinkering and stuff, but like, let's say you had, you know, 50 times the amount of units you had now. Like my guess is you don't want that either, right? Like there's, there's gotta be, you know, it, it, it always goes back to, and, and I see this all the time because I see a lot of real estate investors and the real estate investors that make the most money are the ones who only do a few deals a year, not the ones that are doing hundred deals a year because their margins are super slim. They always need that next one, next one, next one. The ones that are doing a few deals a year, you know, anywhere between four and 10, 12 deals a year are really profitable because they're making $40,000 a, a clip instead of $10,000 a clip. So I'm guessing your mindset is similar to that. And I love what you're doing now of trying to be, you know, pinching out every darn penny on each one of these things and get it as, you know, efficient as possible before you move on to your next one. Yeah. And I, I, maybe I, I didn't elaborate on that enough, enough. So it's like fun, but you also have the ability where you don't have to do that. Like if you're like, okay, well, this one yeah. is good. You can kind of step away from that. And that's just kind of one of the things that's awesome about the storage business is it's very forgiving. And you can kind of just let it run itself. Like, yeah, maybe it's not as efficient as it is. And going back to uh, the other businesses, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of a lot of stuff that just had to be touched. A lot of, hey, we got to do this. We got all these people. We got you know people. We had our VAs overseas. We've got a big team locally. So that is a lot of management. Where now we don't. I don't have that element, so it's a lot less pressure. So I don't know. I feel like there was another question you were kind of leading into that I didn't. You said I didn't answer. I, I, I will say I'm a little disappointed that you don't have any self-storage playbook t-shirts though. And because of that, you know, you didn't even wear the HMB one. This is the, if, if anybody does not know, this is the limited edition Terry Royce shirt. He wanted orange. We ordered five of them. How many did I ship you? Four. And this is the last one remaining. I need a fresh one. Mine's faded. I'm wearing it so much. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I'll see if I can, uh, you know, see if we can get our vendor to hook, a shirt. To, to hook them up. I, I, you know, I had to get an orange one. It was, it was your special edition one and I still have it with me and I, I don't, I don't wear it. I guess I could probably ship you this one since I don't need it. Did you, uh, did you go down one notch in sizes now? 
I'm working on it. We're, I'm doing. I'm in the middle of the 75 hard challenge. So well, this, this is a large. So you let me know when you're ready for it. Okay. Did I did I answer your question? Though I felt like you were you were kind of asking like what I, like the I, goal. I mean, the goal for me is to get I would say between three to five property, and that's more from a cash flow perspective. And then kind of you know maybe sell one every year, one every other year, and buy a new one and kind of turn it over. Or maybe right. I get to where I'm like, hey, these three to five are good. And I just kind of let those coast, you know, and that's the thing I think in this kind of where I'm headed is, you know, we all like to go, 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 but having the ability to coast or take your foot off the gas and or put it back down when you want to is I think what we all really want. But I think a lot of people get stuck in the business and don't know how to take the foot off the gas. Yeah. I understand. Being a slow business kind of forces you to do that to an extent. Yeah, well, this is also a new business for you, so it's forcing you. Yeah. Right? Like, if you were like, oh, cool, I want to start wholesaling again, it's like, well, I'm going to go race again because that's what I know. Like, you can't really go fast because you don't know how to go fast. (laughs) It's not like people are picking up the phone and calling you, hey, I got a property, or hey, there's an auction with 100 100 houses I can go pick and choose from. Like, you're not dependent on on doing it, but... Listen, I like the self-storage. I'm hoping to learn more. I'd like to be able to lend on these assets in the future. I've, I uh, recently looked at our first one that our buddy Ian Horowitz sent over, and it was out of state. And you know, I don't do much stuff out of state, unfortunately. But you know, I'd like to consider some of these things and potentially be an investor, lender, owner of some of these things. It's, it's an interesting business model. I, uh, you know, I, I related to a lot of the stuff that you were saying. I mean, I don't, as you know, I don't love owning rental properties. They're too hands-on for me. I'm not, a, I'm not good at them in general. Like I'm a better lender. I'm a better, pa- more passive. So, but I think that the resources that you need for these is a little bit, it is a little bit easier, you know, on, on, on these things. So, you know, I don't want to say it's easy, but there's not as complicated as it seems once you kind of get in it. So. I can see that. I can see that. And I mean, listen, a lot of people I know these days own, own self-storage, so... You know, that's, that's helpful. You know, when you have a sphere of people that are investing in like kind or similar assets, it makes it easier because you have people to kind of help, help with stuff. So cool. Yeah, man. Does that, uh, did I answer some of your questions? I felt like some of them you were kind of, kind of kept bringing them back. Like I wasn't getting to the core of what you were looking for. No, they were, they were good. They were fun. No, they were, they, they were, they were good. I see. I didn't sabotage you. You thought I was going to come on here and, uh, you know, ask you some crazy Crazy questions. Hey, you never know with uh, Jason Balin. So, well, Jason, have I, have I ever called you out before? No, there's nothing to call me out about. If there's someone out, someone else that's been commenting a lot on this podcast may have done so. But did you get some good questions too? Like, is there anything else? Any last questions before we wrap up that you might have? Or no, I think I think that's helpful, not just for me, but probably everybody that was listening. And you know, I think if anyone's listening and someone's interested about self storage. You know, share this with other people that are interested. I think I think you gave a lot of nuggets, and I think you were the right person to do this because you know, although you have experience, you don't have a ton of experience yet, and you're still learning every day. Yeah. So, Jason, just uh, you know, I appreciate you kind of coming over and taking over the show and flipping the script. <laughs> if anybody wants to get in touch with you, or you know, what's a great what platforms do you have, or what uh, what's a great way to get in touch with you or your networks? We have a lot of platforms. Anything related to hard money bankers. But our website's hardmoneybankers.com. You can email me, Jason, at hardmoneybankers.com or 240-994-2284. But 
is you should be able to find us online. Happy to help. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today again and, and taking over and we'll have to do this again down the road. And I'm yep. sure you're tuned in. Anytime. Thank you, Terry. Hey, everyone. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Self Storage Playbook Podcast. We'd love to know your biggest takeaways from the show today and would love to hear from you at selfstorageplaybook at gmail.com. You can also find out more info on today's guest, the nuts and bolts of self-storage, and connect with other self-storage investors in our growing community at selfstorageplaybook.com and through searching our group on Facebook at Self Storage Playbook. And don't forget to go to www.storagerebeltrial.com for your risk-free one-month trial to the Storage Rebellion University monthly calls. I'll see you there.